Hello and welcome to Vibrant Lives Podcast, a podcast dedicated to your health and well-being, featuring interviews with experts about nutrition, physical health, mental health, and my five-minute food facts series, which are short episodes where I discuss a nutrition-related topic. I'm Amanda Hayes, your host. I'm a lawyer turned nutritionist, and I'm on a quest to learn as much as I possibly can about living a healthy, active, and fulfilling life, which I would call a vibrant life, and sharing what I learn with you here on this podcast. The health and nutrition space can be a confusing one, where information and misinformation abound, and identifying reliable, trustworthy sources of information is not always straightforward. My aim is to help you do that by speaking with knowledgeable guests who can explain their area of expertise in an accessible way and provide you with practical tips that you can use to improve your own well-being. Before I introduce today's guest, I'll quickly acknowledge that any information or advice provided in Vibrant Lives podcast is not intended to be used to treat or prevent medical conditions and it's never a substitute for advice from your own health professionals. Today I am here with Associate Professor Dr Susan Woods. Susie is a Senior Research Fellow at the Faculty of Health and Medical Sciences at the Adelaide Medical School. She's a biomedical scientist and her lab focuses on gut cancers. In June, during Bowel Cancer Awareness Month, I interviewed Nick Lee, OAM, founder and chair of the Jodie Lee Foundation. In that episode, we discussed the Jodie Lee Foundation and its impact, bowel cancer awareness campaigns, the importance of early detection and some risk factors for bowel cancer. This is like a companion episode where we'll be adding to that discussion, including exploring some of the fascinating and cutting-edge research in the bowel cancer space that Susie is involved in in her lab. By way of a quick reminder, bowel cancer is a preventable disease. If early bowel cancers are detected, they can be removed and 95% of patients will be cured. That's why it's so important that it is detected early. Unfortunately, however, over 4,000 Australians still die every year from bowel cancer and Susie and her colleagues in their lab are working towards changing this statistic. Hi Susie. Hi Amanda. Thank you so much for coming on Vibrant Lives podcast today and Susie I'd like to start the episode with some quick fire questions to get to know a little bit about you outside your work as a research fellow at the Adelaide Medical School. Susie where did you grow up? So uh, I'm an Adelaide girl, um, fairly idyllic childhood. I grew mm -hmm. up at Westlake, lots of swimming over summer and playing on the beach and camping and all that sort of good stuff. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's a really lovely part of Adelaide for people that are not from here. And your favourite form of exercise? Uh, so, look, I, I love exercising, so I ride my bike to work. I think my my number one sport, though, is hockey. I've always been a hockey player right. and unfortunately now my kids have to put up with me coaching them, so they ah. deal with that pretty well, though. <laughs> and since you've been playing hockey, have you seen a progression in terms of when I used to play it was all on grass and now it's on turf? 
Yeah, so actually my kids are still young enough they play on grass, but, uh, yes, much to their consternation, they like the games on turf because it's easier. But it's so much fun on grass. For kids, I love it. On, I loved getting muddy and, you know, it was fun. Fun yeah. times. Your go-to meal for dinner, so something that you might cook for your family um, on a weeknight, for example. Yeah, so, I mean, there's lots. I mean, my, my main thing probably is just a big bowl of salad in the mm. table and then it has you know, pasta or protein or whatever else. One of my daughters would have chicken nuggets every night if she could, you know, um, yeah, <laughs> Mexican yeah. fish, what, whatever. Um, yeah. yeah, so a wide variety with, with lots of salad. That sounds very healthy and good. And are you currently reading anything? I'm actually reading a lot about arthritis at the moment um, because I don't know a lot about it. And turns out some of the research that we're doing looks like some of the building blocks we're looking at that are important in the gut mm-hmm. are actually also important in your knee where you get arthritis. Wow. So we're trying to publish that at the moment. So I'm mm. trying to upskill myself in yes. learning about all of that. Yeah, Isn't it so fascinating that the more we learn, the more everything is interconnected or the more we understand how it's interconnected. So the gut and the brain, for example. Yeah, I mean... I am continuously amazed by evolution and how complex it is, but also how it reuses the same pieces just in different settings. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, And are you enjoying listening to anything at the moment? It could be music, podcast, audio book. So I have to say my dirty little secret is I listen to really escapist, terrible audio books when I'm not. Uh, working so yeah to go to sleep at night just to switch my brain off and I yeah they're terrible they're not quality literature that doesn't matter it's I mean I think you probably maybe that's a form of relaxation or release so you don't have to concentrate like reading about arthritis for example (laughs) yes your favorite holiday destination anywhere in the world uh, so I'd have to say after all the lockdowns and stress last year, we we made it up to the Gold well, up to further up north in Queensland to the Great Barrier Reef and wow. made it up there with the kids and snorkeling out on the reef. And it was just, it felt like absolute paradise. I yes. would love to do it again and again. Yeah. yeah, it's absolutely magical. We've done that with our children as well. And it's a, it's a whole world under there isn't it that you can't yeah. see until you've got your mask and, and snorkel on so let's talk a bit about gut cancer a bit of an overview I thought so your lab focuses on gut cancer so what does the term gut cancer encompass well so for us um, obviously your gut goes all the way from your mouth to mm-hmm. your bottom um, we primarily focus on bowel cancer which is the sort of later end of the gut. But we do also work um, quite a bit on there's a form of inherited stomach cancer Mm -hmm. where families in Australia, for some reason, which we've identified now, um, have a lot more stomach cancer than we would think. So we're trying to help those families predict who might be at risk, who needs more um, surveillance. And we also, apart from sort of bowel cancer and stomach cancer, we also are focusing on patients with gut cancer that have some of the worst outcomes and those patients are the ones, um, so the most common side of metastasis, Mm -hmm. so when the cancer cells start spreading around the body um, is the liver, but the second most common site is in the peritoneum. And so we 
are focusing on those patients, trying to help them so that their cancer can start in the stomach or the appendix or further down in the bowel. Mm -hmm. And it's just where it goes then is how we, so that's kind of how we catch everybody as a gut cancer patient. Yeah. Yeah. Can you give me a bit of an education? What's the peritoneum? Okay. Yeah, sorry. Um, So please stop me when I use words um, like that. (laughs) I've heard of it, but I can't quite place it. (laughs) Yep. So anywhere in your abdomen, Mm -hmm. um, so in your tummy, around that there's a lining. So under your skin, there's Ah. different layers and the peritoneum is one of those layers and it sort of holds all of those organs in your abdomen inside it. Right. Okay. So I imagine then it's it could potentially be quite a big space if it's yeah yeah correct. So it's sort of anything in your abdomen that could grow a cancer and and sort of float off. Yeah. Not that there's a lot of free space in there, no. but if it can just escape from your gut, it might just float out onto the peritoneum and stick right. there. Right. Yeah. Oh dear, that doesn't sound very good. Susie, I'm interested to know, in relation to bowel cancer, apart from being classified by the location, so for example, it could be in the colon or the rectum, are there different types of cancer, the way there are different types of breast cancer? Yeah, definitely. And I think um, that's one of the major contributions of research is Mm -hmm. trying to understand different sorts. Yeah. At the moment, um, if some a patient comes in with bowel cancer, then there are a few markers that their physician will look at to help to decide what sort of treatment they should have. Um, and so it's usually only used for sort of advanced cases right. where um, on top of, so surgery is the mainstay of treatment mm. and then on top of that standard chemotherapy, but then there are some other drugs that we can add um, for particular subtypes. Right. Okay. So it's important, obviously, to get as much detail as we possibly can to get the best available treatment that we know about. Yes, Um, definitely. It's amazing, actually. We we do some work with um, our New Zealand um, counterparts and just the level of detail that patients can get here and access to different Mm -hmm. drugs that unfortunately just isn't always available even in New Zealand, which is a similar sort of uh, smaller country, but yeah. similar sort of um, financial wealth and stuff. Yes, um, so, yeah. and a developed yeah. medical system like ours. Yeah. I guess one thing, it's a function of population to an extent, isn't it? Um, yeah. So one thing that came through really loud and clear when I interviewed Nick Lee a few weeks ago is that early detection and treatment is so vital for achieving a successful outcome in bowel cancer. So I'd like to delve into that. Can you talk us through how the prognosis changes in um, gut or bowel cancer, for example, from an early stage detection through to a late stage detection? Sure. Well, I mean, I think I would be out of a job if we found everyone early because Mm. we know that we can cure over 95% of those people. If it's found early, then um, it's very, very good outcomes. So unfortunately, though, um, the outcomes become just worse, progressively worse as the disease gets bigger, as it spreads to different places. And so a patient with metastatic disease, that's where it's decided to leave its original site and move around the body. Only 13% of those people are alive after five years. So very quickly, you can see that um, 
there's a lot of treatment and a lot of um, hardship for those patients um, yeah. very quickly after the early disease stage. And it really, really underlines how important it is to detect it early. And um, I know that in some cases, bowel cancer can be asymptomatic in the early stages. So that underlines again how important screening and things like that are. But uh, on the topic of early detection, what are some of the common symptoms that people should be aware of um, just so they can perhaps look into things if, if there's something a bit different for them going on? Sure. And I think one of the things is these are the things we don't like to talk about. Yeah, of course. But um, we are today. Yes. <laughs> so not that everybody religiously likes to note what their bowel habits are like, but that's one of the key changes. If you have to go a lot more often or it's the texture of it has changed. Mm. And that's not just something when you're just a bit nervous before something, then obviously yeah. the gut responds to different stimulus. But if it's something that's happening for a couple of weeks, um, definitely go and see your doctor. If you see blood in your stool um, or quite often GPs will notice that a patient is anemic. So you have uh, like, like yeah. you, there's a sign that you're losing blood somewhere. Um, that's a, one of the key indicators for a GP. Um, if you have pain in your abdomen, around your tummy, or pain when you're passing um, stool, weight loss, tiredness, all those things that you mm. probably don't immediately notice. You think, oh, I'm just a bit tired, but um, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so it's really important to just be aware, I think, of um, your own um, bowel habits and and take it seriously when things change. As you say, not a one-off, like you're nervous before a running race or an exam, <laughs> but if it's been going on for a couple of weeks, you think, mm, this isn't quite right. And GPs are very good at talking about those kind of things, even though it might be a bit awkward or embarrassing for the patient, but it's so important. So on to what you do in your lab. I'd like to get a sense, Susie, of what you actually do because when we think of um, scientific researchers we think about people in lab coats peering down microscopes but I know in your case that uh, you do interact with patients and survivors and they are integral to your research so I thought it would be interesting to us if you could give us a bit of a, an overview of some of the things that you might do in a typical week. Yes, sure. So I understand that everybody <laughs> thinks we just we play with tubes and to be honest, I'd be very happy just playing with tubes and doing experiments. <laughs> uh, so for me, unfortunately, a lot of what I do now is applying for funding. Oh, but, no. Uh, unfortunately. Um, but the people in my group, so I have a small team here of awesome people. So what they're doing is they're listening into the clinical meetings to hear about bowel cancer patients that are coming, particularly through the Royal Adelaide mm -hmm. Hospital or Queen Elizabeth Hospital to find out if there are any patients that might be relevant for some of our studies. So then yeah. they might go and talk to the patients, see if they're interested in being part of our research. And then once the patient has agreed to be part, then, then they go into theatre to collect samples. Usually it's if a patient is having a part of their gut cut out by a right. surgeon so they'll go into theatre collect a sample um, bring it straight back so they walk straight across from the Royal Adelaide Hospital across to into Samri mm -hmm. into the cheese grater and then they'll bring that sample up to our lab and 
um, manipulate it in the lab so that we yeah. can grow the sample in a dish in the lab. It's part of what we do. That's um, amazing. Yeah, they do. They uh, One project recently was a little bit physically unpleasant because um, some of the samples we wanted to grow the bacteria so the germs, the mm. good germs and the bad germs that live in the samples. And so one of my um, postdocs, she was working in a low oxygen chamber, which is uh, if you imagine a big workstation with some gloves and you put the gloves on backwards so you can put your arms into it. So oh, all the sample right. yes. doesn't have any oxygen on it because that kills a lot of bacteria mm -hmm. that don't like oxygen. Um, and it's also heated to 37 so she had her arms in these big plastic gloves at 37 and just the sweat was just dripping off oh, her. Like so that a was a, a, a heat box. Um, yeah. And some of the other people um, in my group, we have a, a mouse hospital here, which essentially we um, have mouse models of bowel cancer when we need to um, use animals because we need a whole system whole animal something we try to use patient samples in a dish as much as we can but sure. sometimes we um so some of them are looking after our animals yeah those and some people are just playing with tubes in the lab because we've got samples and we need to do stuff with them yeah and when uh someone collects a sample from an operating theater does the sample need to be put on ice or something does it have or and you sort of get it back as quickly as you can to the lab yes Definitely. Yeah. So there's protocols around all of that. Oh, yes. Um, yeah, and that's part of why we need really good relationships with the surgeons and the nurses and the pathologists because, yeah, obviously they don't want any just anybody coming into their theatre. Of course not. Mm. Um, and, yeah, it's important for what we want to do with it that we can get it as quickly as we can. So it's yeah. important that our lab is next to the hospital. Yeah. Yes. And do you find that patients are in as a generalization quite open to participating oh uh, definitely yeah um, why wouldn't you be again and again we're astounded by how giving people are mm. at sort of the worst stages of their life in the sense that they're scared um they don't know what's going to happen always um yeah even when there are language barriers they're quite open to having a translator present i it's, it's unusual for us for people to say that they won't help and it's usually just because they're overwhelmed. It's yeah. probably, yeah. Yeah, the whole medical system, if you're not part of it, can, can be stressful and alienating, I think. But I imagine that a lot of patients take the view that, you know, if they join in your research, it, it may possibly help them, but if not, it might help someone else in the future. Yeah, um, it's actually surprising when we... When we talk to patients about what we do, we actually are very clear that it's probably unlikely to help them because mm. usually what we're doing is in the future. Um, so they're actually all quite happy as long as it may help someone and, yes. and they acknowledge that it probably actually won't help them, but as long as it helps potentially their children or somebody they know or even to someone they don't know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And the advancement of science in general is probably something people would feel, you know, quite happy to contribute to, I imagine, despite yeah. the circumstances. Yeah, very much. I think everybody wants hope. Um, so some of the, um, we work with some colorectal cancer survivors and even patients that still have 
disease. And they say it's very important to give people hope, not to take away mm. hope. Um, mm. And that's one of the things we can do by being research is that there's a hope that in the future it won't continue to be um, a death sentence, some of the kinds of cancer that we deal with. Yeah. Yes. There's a very lovely video on your, uh, I'm not sure what the page is at the University of Adelaide where you're talking to one of the survivors. Yeah. yeah. I'll put a link to that in the show notes because it really does show the tr translational side of um, research and medicine. Yeah, um, and, and she is an amazing person, Julie. Um, yeah. yeah, no, that's really, that's really nice that you can see the human side of, of what you're doing. <laughs> we mentioned that if bowel cancer is detected early, it's largely, it's largely preventable. So... Could you give us a rundown of what the current detection methods are uh, for early stage detection? And that's going to lead on to my next question. Sure. Um, so if anybody, any of your listeners are aged 50 to 74, then they will have, from their 50th birthday, received um, a testing kit from the government. So that's a free test that they get every two years Um which encourages them to test their stool. Um, and the idea of that is it's looking for trace amounts of blood in their stool. Um, and if that test comes back positive, then it doesn't mean that they have cancer necessarily. What it means is that they need to have another test, which is yep. called usually called a colonoscopy, which oh, right. is mm. a long, skinny video um, that they'll go back to a doctor um, and essentially have images taken of all along their gut to see if there's anything there to worry about. Um, and from there, um, then most people are cleared. Some will have found some of the um, little starting benign starters to a cancer that are removed. They're and the polyps, a very, Yeah, they? that's yeah. a polyp. Mm -hmm. Yep. Um, and a very small percentage will have um, a cancer found. Um, but yeah, I just I just wanted to emphasize that you know there are lots of causes for having a positive stool test and not to instantly be paralyzed by fear. Um, right. Yeah. Yeah. It's just important that that mean, then means that you need to go and have a colonoscopy. Yeah. Sure. I mean, someone could have hemorrhoids, for example, yeah. and that could be causing the blood in the stool, not necessarily cancer. Exactly. Um, yeah. In your lab, I understand that there's some projects you're focusing on to find the hidden early cancers, ones that for whatever reason are not picked up by those screening tests. So in terms of developing new detection tests, um, what are we looking at? What, what, sorry, what might we see in the future? So in my dreams, um, we would move away from a stool-based testing mm -hmm. um, because that's at least one of the reasons why people and why our uptake of the free tests is below 50%, which yes. is just insane to me. I'm sure you talked about that with Nick. We did. Um, yeah, so we're working on a, a sort of bacteria, a germ. Mm -hmm. So it's actually in a probiotic that you can buy over the counter in Australia, usually people take it if they have um, a few different gut disorders, they mm -hmm. may take this probiotic. So that strain of bacteria, for some reason that we don't really understand, actually goes to early cancers and cancers and it lives there. Right. And that's 
it doesn't live in your normal gut so much. It, it finds the areas of interest for us in terms of um, preventing cancer. So what we're doing with some collaborators from the US is engineering those bacteria so that when they go into those early cancers and cancers, they release a signal and that can go into your blood or possibly we could go in, it could go into your urine. We're working on the the blood um, sort of modality because that's probably more palatable for people to take a probiotic pill and then they go and have a blood test along with all their other blood tests that the GP has ordered for them, Um, except this one might indicate that they should go and have a colonoscopy instead. That's so so interesting. That's that's one of the things uh, that we're doing. We're also, the thing, the cool thing about bacteria is they're alive. Yes. So you can, they can go and live, for example, in an early cancer, but we can also engineer them to make, start making a drug when they find it. So they can, they can act by themselves to go and start treating disease, um, I think is the future of where we would like to be. Yeah. That is, that, that blows my mind. <laughs> That's cool, isn't it? Yeah. That is so cool. It, and that would be, I imagine, uh, part of the reason for engineering something like that is it would hopefully have fewer side effects than chemotherapy because it would be much more targeted. Yeah, so that's um, one of the things I talk a lot about with um, some of the bowel cancer patients that work with us is they've had chemotherapy and uh, or immune-activating therapies, the neuroimmunotherapies, oh, yeah. and there, there are a lot of um, gut toxicity that's associated with those drugs and other sites, mm. and that's one of the key things is if we can target it, then we can reduce all the off-target effects of treatment that we really don't want. Yeah, Yeah, I think, um, and please correct me if I'm wrong because I'm not a doctor, but my understanding of chemotherapy is that it kills off dividing cells. So there's a lot of collateral damage um, along along with killing the cancer cells. Well, that's why people lose their hair, for example, isn't it, those Yeah, exactly. mm. And and it becomes a quality of life choice for people with, um, advanced cancers yeah. is there's a decision. So what benefit do I get from the treatment? How does it make me feel? And that's a balance for their medical oncologist to work out what's acceptable, what's tolerated and yes. what's what's not. Um, and it's a tough call um, because everybody wants to live longer usually. Of course. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I've watched it up close. Um, it's, a, it's a terrible decision <laughs> to mm. make. Um, it's almost like choosing the lesser of two evils in a way, I think. Yeah. For many I, people. Mm. Yes, whether it really is a choice or not is tricky, but that's, yeah. yes, so that sort of inspires these kinds of approaches where we can, it's it's sort of the holy grail of better cancer treatment is providing it just to where we want it to go rather than everywhere else. Yeah. Yes. So what then... Um, What's the connection between gut bacteria and cancer in the gut? What do we know about that? So it's really just probably in the last decade um, it's become a focus where we really are able to use new sequencing technologies to really catalogue all the bacteria that are in your gut Mm -hmm. and see that with people that have cancer, then they have an altered microbiome, so an altered 
composition of the bacteria that are found in your gut. And we know that particular bacteria are bad. So that if we give them, for example, to an animal model, then that makes bowel cancer worse. Um, Some of them actually change as a result of the cancer. So they might not have caused the cancer, but they're downstream. Um, So it's sort of separating which ones cause, potentially cause cancer and which Mm -hmm. one's just a result of potentially of treatment. So a lot of cancer patients are on treatment and that will, you're also treating the the, um, bugs in their gut as well as the patient. So um, I guess thinking about all those sorts of things, um, a lot of it's dependent on sort of diet and how how do we work out what bacteria live in which people um, is still... A massive field of research and I wouldn't say we've worked that out um, by any stretch of the imagination but we have worked out some bacteria that definitely signal um, and, are, and are potentially bad for causing bowel cancer. Right that that's incredibly interesting I, I would say in terms of a microbiome we might be at the tip of the iceberg uh, in terms yeah. of the understanding. I wonder if um, I mean people's microbiomes change as you say as a result of diet or if they've been taking antibiotics or whatever but I wonder if there'll be a um, it'll become routine one day to have a snapshot of your microbiome and and then be able to compare it um, and and look for changes um, major changes that might signal something so I mean there are already companies that offer a service where you can send in a sample of your Mm. stool and they will tell you so we know that usually the more different sorts of bacteria you have in your gut is normally a sign of a healthier gut. So they can look just, for example, at that and tell you, yes, you've got a lot of diversity yes. or no, you don't. Here's some things you might be able to do. Um, for some of the newer cancer treatments, we know that the patient's microbiome is a real indicator of potentially whether the treatment's going to work or not. So there are some studies at the moment that are transferring the gut microbiome from a, a responding patient yeah. and giving it to a patient that's new to the treatment to see if they can um, change the microbiome in a way that will then make the treatment work better. And that's all sort of very much um, in process and in clinical trial, those sorts of approaches at the moment. That's that's fascinating. It sounds like the uh, kind of trials where they look at. I think I think it's been done in mouse models where they'll they'll put um, the microbiome of an obese mouse into a thin mouse, and then the thin mouse gains weight. Yes. So clearly, the microbiome uh, it plays into all the systems in our body. I think. Yes, definitely, and. If there's one message, it's uh, eat fibre. <laughs> yes, that was that also came through um, when I spoke with Nick, and I do want to talk about uh, some of the lifestyle habits we can adopt. Um, but before we go there, uh, one of another thing, and you have alluded to this, but you work um, in your lab with people whose bowel cancer has been detected at a late stage. And some of the things you're doing is looking at a really personalised approach. So can you, t- precision medicine, I think it's called, mm-hmm. can you talk to us a bit about that? So sure. So, I mean, this is inspired by the fact that the chemotherapy regimens that we use mm-hmm. for cancer patients have really been, they've been modified a little bit over the last couple of decades, but they're essentially the same. 
So it's like, okay, we've got the same treatments. Is that really the best we can do? So we can see in blood cancers, um, there's been real advances where we know that a particular change to the genetic material in a patient, so the DNA change, mm -hmm. can say, okay, they should be getting this drug and they'll respond. So it's a bit more complicated when we go to solid cancers. There's more genetic changes than you see in blood cancers. So there's more targets, but they also interact in ways we can't really always understand from just looking at the DNA changes. Mm. So it's important what we do is we take a sample of tissue from a patient and then we've got a live, um, essentially a little um, piece of material that will tell us possibly if the patient's tumour might respond to a particular range of drugs. So we've done um, one study that we completed with patients with peritoneal um, metastasis and we um, took their samples and grew them up here and we actually sent those samples um, to a lab in Seattle and they did a lot of the drug testing there. So they tested those samples against 120 drugs um, and sent back a report which we could share with the medical oncology team to say, okay, that patient sample is specifically sensitive to this drug. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so we've moved on a little bit from that now where we do the drug testing here um, in-house and we are really, again, looking at these peritoneal um, patients with peritoneal metastasis and just looking at a couple of different chemotherapy drugs to see if are they more sensitive to one or the other um, and then feeding that back to the medical oncologist to see if maybe they might think about changing their treatment based on... Um, the answers that we get. So in that way, the patient, the treatment they get is based on the response of their tissue, their sample, rather than just what um, has been done. Yeah, what's been done before. Yeah. Mm. What's really interesting about that to me is I recently interviewed um, a, a man called Harry Glorickian, and he's a medical stroke venture capitalist biochemistry type who um, is interested in artificial intelligence and big data. And what you were talking about then is one of the applications, you know, the um, AI can look through millions of drug combinations and, you know, come up with ideas that might be the best treatment. So it's fascinating. There's a lot of technology playing into, you know, behind the scenes of, of what you're actually doing I, I believe. Yes, and I, we have been approached by quite a few AI startups mm. for just for the, the data to, yeah. and I mean, we, we've released it to say, okay, is, is there something that a computer or an algorithm can find in our answer in the data that I can't see because I'm not as like smart? Well, as, it's as not that. It's that we're human and mm. we can't take in as much. Like it, um, AI could analyse you know, millions of data points and, mm. you know, and a human, we can take what they analyse and apply it. But I think it's, I think it's a really interesting space. Yeah, definitely. And I think where we fall down is our data set isn't big enough yet for yes. an AI approach. Um, that's right, I think. But that, that's only going to improve, I think. As you know, one of my goals at Vibrant Lives podcast is to help demystify nutrition to cut through the hype and half-truths and give you reliable information. 
If this sounds good to you, then check out my free guide where I debunk five nutrition myths and I'll put a link to my free guide in the show notes. Now back to my discussion with Associate Professor Dr. Susan Woods. Susie, one of your goals is the eradication of gut or bowel cancer. Can you see that happening? Yes, I think the well the the quickest way is really what, what Nick Lee is working on as well, is getting everybody to be screened. Um, and that's the quickest way we're going to eradicate it. Um, I think there will always be people that, for whatever reason, either are too young for mm-hmm. our screening at the moment. Unfortunately, people under 50, you know, you, you can still be screened. If you have symptoms and you're worried, you go to your GP and you can have tests. Definitely, I would encourage that. But as, as a rule, people under 50 um, aren't screened. Yes. And we can see um, it's quite scary, actually, the incidence of bowel cancer in younger people is steadily rising um, yeah. currently. So it's a bit of a worry that um, a lot of that population isn't being screened. So anyway, yeah. just as a preface to say, they, I think there for quite a while to come, there will still be bowel cancer and we'll still need better treatments. Um, so I, I don't think I'll be out of a job anytime soon, no. um, unfortunately. Yeah. Uh, Nick's wife, Jodie, who uh, died of bowel cancer, uh, was 39 when she yeah. got it. Um, so that's outside the screening da- um, age. He would like to see it at ha- start at a younger age. Um, because I work in this space, I have also, um, of course, had a colonoscopy because otherwise I was drive myself mad. Um, oh, yes. Thinking... Yeah, you know, if you work on something often enough, you're pretty sure you'll see all your symptoms. And yeah, anyway. Yes, no, you, I, I'm sure that's right. But I guess the problem is there's always going to be a problem. I think there'll always be a gap where some people, for whatever reason, it might be a lack of medical literacy, it might be a language barrier, they might slip through the cracks, even if, you know, people are sent these testing kits. Well, we already know that the participation rate is is quite low so there's a lot of work to do (laughs) yes there is and I think it it comes back to I mean obviously with school age kids I see how key education is um, with healthy lifestyle with being active I mean things like the sports voucher program that um, the government introduced are just amazing for increasing participation in active lifestyle type things that, uh, yeah. Yeah, it, it's so important. And on, on that topic, on the lifestyle topic, we, we know that there are some risk factors that we can't modify. For example, age, we can't change our age, although people try. <laughs> <laughs> um, and we um, can't change our genes. But there are a lot of things that we can do. And I think it's always really important when we're talking about a heavy topic like bowel cancer to look at the positives. And uh, you've mentioned dietary fiber is um, eating enough of that. And that's really great for your gut health. What other factors or what are the things that you would recommend people should do to to reduce their risk of um, gut or bowel cancer? So I'm, I'm pretty sure most people will know already. Um, I I find it 
sometimes a little bit amusing when um, when we are consenting cancer patients and they say, why why me? Why, you know, and is it my fault? And, and you say, no, it's not your fault. It's, you know, a random event. What can you do? Well, you can, yes, eat lots of fresh fruit and veggies and fibre. You can reduce the number of processed meats mm. that you eat. You don't smoke um, would be a good one. And just be active and maintain a healthy body weight. So there's lots of worse health outcomes um, if you start putting on a bit too much weight. So I think I think most people probably know that it's not it's not rocket science. I know that no. yeah, can be hard maintaining a healthy um, body weight, particularly for some people. Some people it's easy, others it isn't. Yeah. Yeah, we, we know those things, but it's one thing I think to know something and it's another thing to act on them. And I think you kind of hit the nail on the head when you talked about the sports vouchers because I think if we instill these habits at an early age, it'll just be the way people live, you know, just mm-hmm. constantly being active and, and eating well. Yeah, I think well, we, there's good data out there that you get addicted to exercise and endorphins and yeah yeah. Um, yes I'm definitely an addict (laughs) 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 it's a good thing to be addicted to I think so let's wrap up now Susie and so who or what inspires you ah so I think you can you can probably tell that I'm a bit of a nerd and so really just the sort of beauty and complexity of biology is always going to get me out of bed that the fact that, you know, there's been millions of years of evolution to generate us and everything that goes on in our body, we don't even think about it, most of it. It's all subconscious and it's all happening and you modify a little bit of the system and then there's another system that comes in and repairs the damage and all this happens. So anyway, I'm just fascinated by that. And so that would mean I would work in something to do with science and biology, but I think having had... um, very close people to me die from cancer and obviously meeting sort of in my work that I do now, meeting amazing people that have cancer or have had cancer. Mm. Um, And it's just such an opportunity to learn something but also learn it in a way that maybe we can help someone, I think, is my sort of reason to do what I do. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's wonderful. We're lucky to have you and your colleagues and people like you doing what you do. And Susie, I like to ask all my guests, if you could recommend two things that people could do to improve their well-being, could be anything at all, what would they be? I think just find a way to do what you enjoy. So that, that I'm very lucky. My work um, has, you know, I think I lasted three shifts as a waitress and then I, and other sort of jobs like that, um, I just it wasn't I wasn't wasn't cut out for it, um, and I think I found my calling in something like this. And I can come to work and enjoy my days, which yeah. is quite rare. Um, and oh, a second thing I don't just for me it's being active and eating well, enjoying life because you only walk this road once, right? So absolutely, yeah. And I think the older we get, the more acutely aware of that we become. Mm. seize the moment and if people want to look at what's happening in your lab what research is going on where should they they look 
Uh, so, as, as you said, the University of Adelaide website, if you just look up Google Susan Woods Adelaide, um, you'll get led to my website. Um, but also we, we often have press releases, um, you know, can read about me in the advertiser occasionally. Um, Excellent. I, I encourage as well people to look if if there are people with gut cancer and they want to know about trials or things like that in Australia, there's um, a website. So it's gicancer.org.au um, has information about Australian trials mm-hmm. and information for patients and things like that. It's a really good resource um, for people. Great. A- along with, sorry, along with the Cancer Council. Um, yeah, yeah, the Cancer Council is excellent. So I'll put links to those in the show notes. So Susie, thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure chatting with you today and thank you for sharing your knowledge and your insights. It's so interesting what you're working on. No worries. Thank you for uh, doing what you do and getting all this information out there to people. Well, I've found what I love doing as well. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, great. Sounds great if you get to talk to people, um, yeah, about interesting things. It it's so good. interesting. And the one thing I've found about every person I've interviewed, everybody has a story. You know, it's it's just fascinating what motivates people to do what they do. And, and I love hearing about that. That was Dr. Susan Woods sharing her knowledge on gut cancer research. I found that discussion really uplifting, even though we were talking about cancer, because it sounds like Susie and her team are poised to make real differences in gut cancer detection and treatment. So I hope you enjoyed that discussion also. If you did, please share the podcast with your friends. In the world of podcasting, word of mouth is still one of the best ways for people to find out about Vibrant Lives podcast. Please follow me on Instagram at vibrant underscore lives underscore podcast or on Facebook at Vibrant Lives Podcast Or check out my website at vibrantlivespodcast.com. There you'll find a history of all my podcast episodes and a library of books that I review and recommend. If you'd like to DM me or send me an email via the contacts page on my website, I'd love to hear from you. You can let me know what you'd like to hear more of or if there's someone you'd like me to interview. I'm always happy for any suggestions. So coming up in my next 5-Minute Food Facts episode... I'm going to compare the different milks, plant-based milks and dairy milk to help you make sense of all the choices and choose the ones that suit your needs and your tastes. This podcast is recorded on ancient Ghana land. I acknowledge the Ghana people as the traditional custodians of this land and pay respects to their elders past, present and emerging. Thank you for tuning into Vibrant Lives podcast. Eat well, Move well, think well.